This week's episode is brought to you by Jeff's Book Buying Service. I wasn't kidding. If there's a book at uh, one of the theme parks that you want, let me know. Maybe I can pick it up for you. There's only a $200 surcharge. No big deal. Welcome to season three. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show, and of course, home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And here we are, the second episode into season three, and we're already going to start doing things just a little bit differently this but year. But not, not, not that differently. No, no, not that just differently. Because we hate change. Mostly. Yes, we don't. We don't want people moving our cheeses. Yeah, you know, don't move my cheese. Don't move my. Only cheese. I can move my own cheese. <laughs> I'll take some Munster and exactly. some Gorgonzola. Exactly. And so, so at the at the time of this I wasn't done naming though, cheeses. Oh, well, see, that's why I was moving on because I was oh. like, oh, well, this could be Communicore cheesy. Communicore cheesy. Well, we already are. Yeah, we already are. What, were, what were you going to say? I'm sorry for interrupting you. For interrupting well, no, no, me. Uh, we're not sure what's actually coming up yet because we've asked the Communicore Weekly Orchestra to record a new bumper for us for the next segment because it's not quite a Disney history, but it sort of ties in. But we're not going to give them any flack because of all the incredible work they did on the musical. Yes, you know? exactly. They've been, they worked really, really hard on that for us. So maybe you'll hear something new right now. Maybe you'll hear something you're used to hearing. I don't know. It's going to be a surprise for everybody. <laughs> So, let's take a listen. It's the 50th anniversary of the 64 World's Fair and the 49th anniversary of the 1965 fart! (laughs) Now, because 2014 is the 50th anniversary of the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair, we thought we'd do something a little different for our history segments. So, for the, throughout the rest of Season 3, we'll have history segments here and there talking about the fair and showcasing some of its pavilions and some of its technologies. And, you know, of course, Disney has some pretty close histories to the 64-65 World's Fair, and of course, we're, we're going to look at that stuff. Um, and we're fair junkies, and it's pretty... <laughs> fascinating to the two of us and you know there was a lot of great technology and ideas that came out of that world's fair so we'll have plenty of things to cover um now it won't be every week that we do this but every few we'll kind of circle back to the fair and we'll dive into some more of its history so in a way season three is going to be the season of the 1964-1965 world's fair for us um but before we talk about that particular fair let's take a look at world's fairs overall Okay, so probably the first question a lot of you might be asking is, what is a World's Fair? What is a World's Fair, George? Thank you, because I was waiting for some response there. Okay, well, a World's Fair or a World Exposition or Universal Exposition, depending on what you call it, is basically a large public exhibition. Uh, They allow people to explore the world outside of their everyday experiences, outside cultures, new scientific advancements, and of course, new inventions. We went into it a little bit way back when we did the history of the theme park segment, but the World's Fairs uh, originated with the French tradition of a national exhibitions. This eventually led to the French Industrial Exposition of 1844 that was held in Paris. And the best known First World Expo was held in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park 
in London in 1851 under the title Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, but mostly America. <laughs> okay, yeah, I made that last part up, so, okay. The, the Great Exhibition, as it was called, was an idea of Prince Albert, and it's considered the first international exhibition of manufactured products. Now, some of the modern marvels that were on display at the Great Exhibition, they range from the first public toilet, very, very classy, mm, yeah. uh, to a precursor to the modern-day fax machine. Uh, but the one creation that literally overshadowed everything else was the Crystal Palace itself, which was the greenhouse-like structure that was fabricated from modular cast iron and glass, and it housed the entire exhibition uh, of the World Expo. Now, it was kind of incredible stuff for the time. Um, but a lot of research claim that after that initial exhibition was held in Hyde Park, World's Fairs can be uh, divided into three eras, industrialization, cultural exchange, and national branding. Hey, we gotta have national branding. Gotta. Gotta have gotta, it. Gotta. Okay, so the very first area, industrialization, lasted from about 1800 to 1938. And in those early days, world expositions were, really, they were especially focused on trade and were more famous for the display of technological inventions and advancements. Uh, world expositions were the platforms where the state-of-the-art in science and tech from around the world were brought together. So, for example, in 1876, the American Centennial Exhibition was the first official World's Fair held in the U.S. in order to celebrate the 100th birthday of the United States. Uh, among the exhibits was the technical marvel of a 1,500-horsepower Corliss steam engine, which powered all the exhibits at the fair. It, it was the centerpiece of the opening festivities when President Ulysses S. Grant turned it on and the fair got underway. Now, from the 1889 World's Fair, uh, the Paris Exposition Universelle, uh, another engineering marvel. Don't laugh at my French. Um, no, I'm trying not to. <laughs> there was another engineering marvel that kind of came from that. Now, maybe you've heard of it before. There's a little structure known as the Eiffel Tower. No big deal. I mean, <laughs> no, not a big deal at all whatsoever. No, no. Now, it was the tallest standing structure in the world upon its completion, and it was considered an, an eyesore by the uh, the public of Paris at the time, but uh, more than a century later, the engineering marvel had become the City of Light's most iconic symbol. And I agree. I think it's kind of awesome. Um, but other inventions at that fair included the telephone. Um, I'm not at, their, at that fair, but overall, uh, telephone, the Ferris wheel, uh, the Panama Canal, they, those were all things that were presented during this first era of these world exhibitions. So moving on to the second era, era which was that of cultural exchange, and it lasted from 1939 to 1987. And it was because of the 1939-1940 New York World's Fair that fairs diverged from the original focus of being uh, World's Fair expositions. From that fair on, the 39-40, World's Fairs adopted specific cultural themes, uh, specifically toward a better future and cultural exchange between nations. Uh, new inventions weren't the primary exhibits at fairs any longer. Instead, it was all about what the world of tomorrow could be. In fact, the, the theme of the 39 Fair was building the world of tomorrow. I really want some kind of echo behind my voice, Jeff, if you can add that in post. I'm probably not going to do that. <sighs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll probably well, forget. That's what I mean. Probably, I'll probably forget. Okay. Forget. And every time we listen to it, be like, oh, oh. Well, anyway. So at the center of this fair, there were two modernist structures known as the Trilon and the Parasphere, a 700-foot spy, spire and a 180-foot sphere, respectively. And at the 64-65 New York's World Fair, it was peace through understanding. 
and at the 1967 International and Universal Exposition in Montreal, it was Man in His World. The fairs encouraged effective intercultural communication for the exchange of innovations. Now, speaking of the 1967 International and Universal Exposition, it was promoted under the name Expo 67, which is way easier to say than International and Universal Exposition all in one, one mouthful yes, there. Yes, very much. So the, the event organizers, they actually they retired the term World's Fair in, ex, uh, in the favor of the word Expo, because Expo kind of seemed more forward-thinking at the time. And uh, if you're a baseball fan, you'd be curious to learn that the Montreal Expos were named for the 1967 Expo, Expo there. Ooh, uh, it's almost like a five-legged baseball Five-legged team. baseball goat fair? Fair goat? Yeah. Something, I don't know. Something like that. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the, no, countries that, that chose to participate in a World's Fair, they generally erected the pavilion that characterized their nation's culture and ideals. And again, for the 1967 uh, Expo in Montreal, American architect and futurist Buckmeister Fuller was chosen to design the U.S. pavilion. And what emerged was a 200-foot rendition of Fuller's iconic geodesic dome. And if you look at said dome, it may look like a certain structure in Future World at Epcot. And it may rhyme with Mayship Birth, but Ooh. I'm not going to give it away. Yeah, who are we to say, right? Well, anyway. Spaceship okay, so Earth. We gave it away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't hold it any longer. It was a secret and I couldn't hold it. Just couldn't stand over. That's enough. Just don't tell Jeff any secrets. Nope. Okay. Sorry. Nope. So for, for more than 100 years, the World's Fair was held exclusively in Western countries. Uh, the U.S. alone played host to the International Affair 18 times. However, in 1970, Japan broke this trend by hosting Asia's first World's Fair in Osaka. The expo was notable for screening the first ever IMAX film, as well as demonstrating early mobile phone and magnetic levitation technology. Kind of like hoverboards, eh? Right. They uh -huh. You have a year left, scientist. One <laughs> right. year from now. We need our hoverboards. Oh, jeez. Now, uh, finally, the third era was that of nation branding. Now, from the Expo 88 in Brisbane onwards, countries started to use world expositions as a platform to kind of improve their national images through their pavilions. And there's actually a study done during Expo 2000, which I hope you realize was done in the year 2000, um, <laughs> that was done in Hanover, and it, and it showed that improving their national image was the primary participation goal for 70% of, uh, I'm sorry, 73% of the countries at the Expo. Uh, Expo that year. Now, uh, in a world where a strong national image is kind of a key asset, pavilions uh, became advertising campaigns, and the Expo is a vehicle for their nation branding. Um, and today's world exhibitions embody elements of all three eras, and they present you know new inventions, they facilitate cultural exchange based on a theme, and are used for city, region, and nation, uh, nation branding. So presently, there are two types of world expositions, registered and recognized. Registered expositions are the biggest category of events. Previously, registered exposi expositions were called universal expositions, though it's no longer in use as an official term. And at registered expositions, participants generally build their own pavilions. Uh, they are therefore the most extravagant and the most expensive expos. Their, their duration may be between six weeks and six months. And since 1995, the interval between two registered expositions has been at least five years. And uh, just for future reference, while uh, the 1964 1965 World's Fair was considered a registered exposition, it was never given that official status because uh, Robert Moses, who was in charge of the fair, he didn't really comply with all of the rules, and he ran it for two years, for two seasons, as opposed to for just six months. 
Um, but anyway, recognized expositions are smaller in scope, and uh, investments are generally shorter in duration. Um, so they're usually between three weeks and three months. And previously, these expositions were called international or specialized expositions. And organizers, uh, they, they built the pavilions for the, the participating states uh, free of rent. They didn't charge them anything. They didn't pay taxes, any of that stuff. Um, but the largest country pavilions may not exceed... Um, they're, they're, I forget the. There's a certain size limit. I I, I oh, forget how okay. many, but they couldn't exceed that size limit. And only one recognized exposition could be held between two registered expositions. Wow, a lot of rules. So many, a lot of so rules. many rules. Yeah. And uh, as we go through this, we'll hear about Robert Moses a little bit more, and uh, some of the rules he may not have followed. Dun dun dun. Rule breaker. Rule breaker. Breaking the rules. Okay. So now. No matter what type of fair expo it was, one of the primary goals of World's Fairs is to entertain. And both the amusement zones and pavilions in World's Fair have evolved over time. As people have more and more entertainment options, World Expos have continued to find new ways to provide information and inspiration. However, in today's day and age, it's getting increasingly harder to do so. In fact, some of you may not know this, but World's Fairs are still a thing. A lot of people in the U.S. think that because we haven't had one here since 1984 and haven't had one in North America since 1986, that, well, you know, in fact, most Americans aren't aware that there have been 11 World's Fairs since the Louisiana World Exposition in 1984. It's kind of bizarre that we, that we feel that way, but that's Well, okay. it's because we got Epcot. Well, that's true. We do have Epcot. But uh, in 2015, uh, we'll see Expo 2015 in Italy, and uh, Expo 2017 will be held in Kazakhstan, and Expo 2020 in Dubai. So uh, they're definitely still happening. They're definitely still a thing. Uh, but the bottom line is that World's Fairs are still important. And you can kind of relate World's Fairs to Olympics in many ways because, uh, you know, World's Fairs are also unique, uh, but it's that everyday people can experience them firsthand, uh, not just the athletes and those who are lucky enough to get tickets to go to. Uh, World's Fairs are for everybody to, to kind of go and enjoy. Anyone can enter the expo site and they can feel like they're a part of something and they, they feel part of the world community and feel what potential man has been doing for, for good in the world. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited to carry on with, with our history segments and yeah. look at the 64-65 World's Fair in the future. Yeah, and uh, I think this was a long segment, but we had a lot to cover. And I hope while you guys were listening that you sort of saw some connections from these World's Fairs to what we've seen at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, you know, specifically in Epcot. Uh, we'll see a lot of similarities like national branding and new technology. So I'm looking forward to seeing what other things we can uncover. Yeah, I also hope you're paying attention too because there's going to be a quiz at the end of the year. So uh, Who, What, me? No, no, not you. Not you. Oh, Everybody else. We're going to give them a quiz. <sighs> Thank goodness. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Waltz People, Volume 13 by Didier Gez. So Didier is an author and Disney historian who's been researching and writing about Walt Disney and the company for many, many, many years. Uh, one of his more well-known books is Disneyland Paris from Sketch to Reality that he wrote with Alain Lattay. And it is one of the best books ever written about a theme park. Uh, if you can ever find it, 
pick it up. We did review it like a year and a half ago. Okay, so Didier is also really well known for the Waltz People series of books that present uh, interviews with artists, Imagineers, and other people that work directly with Walt Disney. And it's the, the interviews are really one of a kind and outside of seeing them in a few articles, they've never been seen before. And as I mentioned at the top, this is Waltz People Volume 13 that we're talking about. So yes, there were 12 more. And I'm not going to hopefully ruin anything, but you need to go back and buy them all. Definitely. Um, so you might be wondering what's so important about the books. And it's just because it's people being interviewed, right? Well, anytime that you read an article or a book about the films, the company, the parks, the author probably did an in-person interview. And what Didier has done is compiled some of these amazing interviews by uh, some of our favorite Disney researchers and historians. And, you know, I talk about primary sources a lot when we look at the, the history books, because nowadays most information is being reported secondhand. And in this case, Didier is presenting the interviews, usually just transcribed directly from audio recordings, and usually with very little editing except to clean up. And so you, you don't, you're not getting any bias or anything in there, and it's reading these incredible interviews, and you just get the greatest stories from these people. And this one has probably about 20 different interviews, 25, and some names you might recognize, like Virginia Davis, Al Dempster, Joe Grant, Willie Reitherman, um, Don Duckwall, can't miss that name, John Sibley, Floyd Gottfriedson, Roy E. Disney. So there are a lot, oh, and Fess Parker, and Exitensio, Don I Works, and Tony Baxter, whoever that is. There are a ton of interviews in there. And it may sound boring reading interviews, but I'll be honest with you, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. They're uh, great stories are often entertaining, and you'll get some little facts. And, and Jeff, I know you you had a copy of this as well. Yes. And I know you're a fan of the series. I am. I you know I, I enjoy Walt's people very much. Unfortunately, I don't have all the previous twelve volumes. I have most what? of them though. I know I'm missing what? like two, and I think like seven. So I don't really know how Harry escaped from Voldemort. Um, <laughs> oh, wrong book series? Okay. Yeah, wrong um, book series. <laughs> no, but I, I really enjoy them. And, and like like you were saying, George, you know, the these first-hand account interviews are really good. And, and these are the type of things that are becoming too far and few between these days because, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these yeah. Disney legends are are passing away so we don't have these stories anymore um so to get these first-hand account from the original sources is, is fantastic um especially with you know we have so many disney historians now uh telling these stories which are great um but a lot of the original tales get lost in the mix and they get reinterpreted incorrectly so it's really great to have them directly from the uh the horse's mouth and to kind of have them preserved in this uh the walt series especially this one um personally i enjoyed the existentio and the fess parker interviews the best um probably two of the most well-named names sure. uh, in the book but to me their interviews just seemed the most full with all these great little tidbits that i've never heard before and um, I really think, you know, this book and all the other previous books are definitely worth picking up by any Disney nerd. Most definitely. Oh, definitely. And, and I, you know, I'd love to put a little pitch out there that, you know, if these were available in some electronic format, and I'm not talking about like the Kindle version, something that you could really search on some keywords to pull up some like, specific Like a CD-ROM or something? Yeah. Like this we is 1992? CD, some CD-ROM technology. You know, in a database or something like that would be awesome. I'm not pushing it. Just be great for researchers and and for those of you that don't have all 13 volumes 
One of them in particular, somewhere in the middle, not going to give you the exact number, is really almost dedicated to the development of Walt Disney World and the other theme parks. It's got some amazing interviews in it about the creation of it. So if you get the chance, definitely pick up Volume 13. It's just been released a few weeks ago uh, in late 2013. It's well worth it. And then once you get hooked, go back and buy the other 12 because I know Didier will thank you. I think he's got starving somethings to feed. I'm not sure. So star- starving book collection to feed? That's it. A starving book collection to feed. Yeah, much know, like you. Much I know like exactly you. how he feels. Exactly. So Okay. But we were talking about Walt's People, Volume 13 by Didier Gez. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. George, you know what time it is? Um, time to eat? Uh, time for naps. Well, I, I will no? accept either of those two answers, actually, now that, now that you've mentioned that. See, I thought uh, I wasn't going to get quizzed. Sorry, well, this is a different quiz entirely from oh, okay. the other quiz that they're going to get good, later good. on this year. But uh, speaking of time, if you guys ever want to know what time it is, there is a big old watch at the Contemporary Walt Disney World. Have you seen it? No? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you where this is, okay? <laughs> the landscaping leading directly to the main entrance is arranged to look like one of those classic Mickey Mouse wristwatches. Um, there used to be trees lining along the sides of them, but the trees have been removed, I think, for a couple of years now. But you can clearly see the watch band and the watch face itself uh, right there in the lawn. Now, it may not have the correct time or the time <laughs> on it at all, but it's very easily distinguishable as a gigantic watch. I was gonna um, say, yeah, it could be it could be correct twice a day. It can be correct twice a day. However, I don't think it's correct any times yeah. a day. I don't even think there's hands on it. Probably not. Um, your best bet to see it though is from the monorail as you're coming into uh, the Contemporary Resort. So check it out and then tell us what time it is. That is awesome. I was really gonna say like, what time is it? I was like, I didn't. <laughs> Looking at time your actual the, watch. Yeah, I was like, time to make the donuts. So, I time to make the, no the donuts. No, because I stopped wearing a watch now. I just wear my magic band all the time. Oh, do you really? Yeah. I probably, you get a lot of compliments on it, I'm sure, right? Oh, I do. Like, yeah, I use it to what start the hell are you car. wearing on your wrist? <laughs> What's wrong with you? You look so dumb. <laughs> I can't get into my office door at work. I'm like, you can't get into opening. your office door at work. It's not opening. What's going on? So <laughs> That's okay. I hope and, your boss and, doesn't try to steal your identity with all that stuff. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So at least they can get into theme parks with with my identity. That's about it. So, okay. Well, guys, thank you so much for watching and listening and absorbing us another time. Another time. Yes. Another time. Thank you so much. Uh, Be sure to leave us a comment and give us a rating on iTunes. Yep. Email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com with pictures of your magic bands. Yes. Well, you can send them to George. I'm, I'm not going to look. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm sorry. Anyway, feel free to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Yep. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We've got the same names. I'm at Imaginerding and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And you can also call us on the Communicor Weekly hotline at 424 785 Four six two eight. Exactly. And don't forget, Communicore Weekly, the musical, is still available. If you have not heard it yet, you have no idea what you're missing because you haven't heard it yet. Exactly. That's true. Uh, we have an idea what you're missing. Uh, we have an idea. But we know what you're missing. So, But make sure you visit CommunicoreWeekly.com and look for the musical. And you can download it on iTunes, Amazon, and CD Baby. 
And uh, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Big Red. <laughs>